Well, good morning, and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, is where you're going to find us this morning, and if I understand this passage correctly, then uh, I don't believe that we ever really leave this passage. Uh, This passage is so foundational to Christian living, it's the very heart of God. And uh, it is both an honor and uh, a joyful weight to have the responsibility to preach 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. And uh, before we read uh, this passage together, I just, I want to greet you once again. Pastor Brian's done, I believe, a helpful job in welcoming us today into the worship of God. And again, it is a privilege for us to be able to be here uh, today. And again, we think about All of the things, and every single one of us are uniquely made in the image of God, and we all have our unique battles that we face in any given week, and I'm sure some of those are probably flooding your mind and your heart right now, all the ways that the enemy would have you uh, to not be here, uh, to be able to sit under God's Word, to be able to gather with the Lord's people so that together we can corporately and as a congregation worship the risen Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. And his salvation is not only confined to an act upon the cross, but the results of what he did that day and in his resurrection and in his appearing and in his ascension and in his ongoing intercession right now have ongoing results. And so uh, I want us to listen today, not just listen, but I want you to worship today with this realization. The one who bought you is the one who is right now before our Father interceding for you. He's praying for you. And I want that to seep into our heart as we consider this passage today that our, our, our Savior, our elder brother is praying for us. So this battle that we have in the Christian life, and as Christians, we understand that the turn of a calendar really doesn't mean much of anything. Everything that, uh, everything that, that happened December 31st and on in 2017 awaits us once the clock strikes midnight for January 1st, 2018. And so this wonderful reality that our, our Savior is walking alongside us in the walk, and He's praying for us right now to be able to listen, uh, to obey, and to do so with great joy. So with that in view, I want to invite you to worship with me as we read God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, 
that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us. and We pray that you would meet with us as we study your word together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, uh, thankful that somebody finally found that phone that's ringing. So, it's like, it's, the, it's that little thing that the, I, I know that the technology nowadays that we don't use landlines as much, so maybe there's a little bit of a struggle finding where that phone is actually at. But uh, it has been discovered, and uh, so uh, we can press on until about three minutes from now when they try to call back. Um, So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this glorious gospel. The health of the church rises and falls upon the gospel. Let me say that again. The health of the church rises and falls upon the gospel. The true church those who are truly regenerate, will always be okay. The true church has nothing to worry about because of our Father and our salvation in Christ. The true church is always going to be okay. The visible church wrestles about in this earth laboring and limping into eternity. Every struggle or every hesitation that we have in obedience can ultimately be traced back to grappling with the God of the gospel. Everything that a church does is a reflection of what they believe about the gospel. So everything that we do as a church body is a reflection of what we really believe about the gospel. What we do is not the gospel because the gospel is what has been done to us. The gospel is what has been done for us. And that's a very... Uh, clear distinction that I want us to make. What we do does, in fact, reflect what we believe about the gospel. So what you think and what you believe about preaching, about singing, about the ordinances, about membership, about church discipline, about missions, ministry, you fill in the blank of the things that are related to the church that go on throughout the week and throughout the year, discipleship, mercy, justice, All of these demonstrate what we believe about the gospel and how, as a church body, we are to handle its implications for life and ministry. So the title of today's sermon could easily be the gospel according to the scriptures. That phrase accompanied each of these wonderful, marvelous works of Christ. There are several encouraging things that are going on in our day. And there's a renewed interest in ecclesiology, which means uh, just the, the study, the understanding of the church. The church is thinking through global ministry. The church is giving attention to issues of mercy and justice and the personhood of everyone created in the image of God. All of these things are good. The church is growing in understanding that membership matters. 
All of this is happening, I believe, because of a recovery of the gospel. Not that the gospel's ever been lost or even misplaced, but as the gospel is being recovered, it's going to bear fruit in every area of the kingdom. And this is a good thing. How certain are we that what we believe and therefore proclaim is in essence and truth the gospel according to the scriptures? How do we know this? We should keep in mind our cultural influences. We ought to keep in mind as well that each, each and every one of us, we bring our own presuppositions to interpreting the teaching of the Bible. This is one of the reasons that I believe Paul admonishes Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. One pastor made this statement about the gospel, and I feel like it's a helpful uh, quote to mention here in the introduction. Christ's work on the cross was not a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, but a real and definite salvation for God's own chosen people. A redemption that does not redeem, a propitiation that does not propitiate, a reconciliation that does not reconcile, and an atonement that does not atone cannot help anybody. But a redemption that redeems, a propitiation that propitiates, a reconciliation that reconciles, and an atonement that atones reveal a most amazing grace on God's part and draw us to rest in Him and in His completed work rather than our own. So as we consider this text that is before us, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, it's the kind of passage you look at, and as a, as a pastor, uh, you, there's mixed emotions. You immediately get excited uh, that you have the opportunity to preach, but then also it, it feels as though you're going to just crumble upon uh, the weight of it. Uh, in the verses that we, well, really in the first four verses of uh, chapter 15, there are 13 different verbs that are here. So think about it in such a tight space, 13 different verbs, that means there's a lot of action that's happening in a small amount of space in the Bible. Paul begins and he concludes with the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1. So uh, again, three points today. The first one is this, from verses 1 through 2. The gospel made known, or the gospel realized. I want to read again for us the first two verses. Paul instructing this church, Now I make known to you, brethren. So the gospel is for the church. The gospel is not just for people who are lost, but the gospel is for the church. The gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is beginning here, in, right out of the gate, verse two verses, he's making the gospel known to them. So seven of these 13 verbs are found right here. Making known also means that he's drawing their attention. This word is used to introduce a very solemn statement. He's clearly coming out and saying, I want to make something very important known to you. Drawing their attention together so that they could hear the authority that he is standing upon. This gospel which you received, 
It's an authoritative teaching which had been passed on from generations. This gospel in which you also stand, which pictures the abiding results of hearing and receiving and now standing in the gospel, by which you are also saved. So the construction of this verb signifies an action in the past that has ongoing results. The adage that we've heard before, once saved, always saved, really is more accurately understood as once saved, being saved. For the Corinthian believers, Paul wanted them to know the gospel means this. They were being saved by the same God who had saved them. The salvation was ongoing. They were being saved by the very same God and Father who had saved them. You and I never graduate from the gospel. Rather, we grow in the gospel. The way that we grow in the gospel is that we have our attention drawn to it like a magnet. We hold fast to it. Otherwise, verse 2 says, you've believed in vain. If you don't hold fast to it, you have believed in vain. But, lest we think that this is a salvation based on our own works or based upon our own holding to, we are being held by the very one that we are encouraged to hold fast to. So we see this following progression. The gospel is preached, meaning the gospel is being made known. The gospel is received. The gospel is the good news that a glorious God saves in eternity past. He saves present today and saves in the future. It's full. It's complete. It's a, it's a complete redemption. The gospel is what bolsters us and enables us to stand. We are being held by the gospel with an eternally assuring hope that our belief in Christ is not a belief that is in vain. Secondly, verses 3 and 4, the gospel delivered or the gospel proclaimed. What does Paul believe is most important for the Corinthian church to hear? And when you think about, if we're somewhat familiar with what's going on in Corinthians, what do you think about when you hear the Corinthian church? Many of us are immediately drawn to the issues that they're facing. And uh, it appears that there's lots of weakness that's there. And I think any humble church should say that some of the struggles that they encounter are no different than the struggles that we face as well. What does Paul believe is most important for them? What's the most important thing to them? He says, I deliver to you that which is most important. And that's the gospel, the good news of the glory of God in Christ's saving work. More importantly, Paul believes this is what's most important for them. It's unquestionably indicative that God believes this is most important for the church. Paul didn't address all the issues of their sin and their worship only then to explain the gospel. Rather, he begins his letter with the gospel. That's the foundation that he's building off of. What's most important for this church here? What's most important for this church here? Is the gospel. That's why we never really graduate from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We may never preach this text again in our existence, but we are always making this gospel known. We are receiving this gospel. As a church body, we're standing in this gospel. Otherwise, for what purpose have we gathered here today? It's why we're spending the next six weeks to preach from this Bible with help from the Spirit of God Himself, 
the gospel. Now that we've established the gospel's importance, its relevance, its reliability, its place in our life, its place in the life of this church, I should probably answer the question, what is the gospel? Christ was born, lived a sinless life, died, buried, raised again, appeared, ascended, now intercedes and will one day return. All of this is according to the Scriptures. There are at least seven irrefutable questions regarding the death and resurrection of Christ. And I'm just going to fly through these. One, of, one would be this. Was it necessary for Christ to die? Yes. How did Christ die? A bloody cross death. Why did Christ die? For the glory of God and the love of His children. When was this death planned? It was planned in eternity past. God planned it. Christ did it. The Holy Spirit sealed it. What happened at his death? He was beaten. He was crucified. He gave up his spirit. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He appeared and then ascended where he now sits interceding for us. To what extent of Christ's death was its power? Over law, over sin, over death, over life. Is Jesus still dead? Thanks be to God, Luke 24, 6 answers it in this way. He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? Saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and the rest. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here he is risen. Let's take a bit more, uh, a closer look at why Christ's bloody cross death and risen, exalted state is necessary and foundational to our understanding in all things. And why understanding the gospel according to the scriptures is most important. It's more important than anything else a church can do. More important than anything a church can be mastered by. If there's one thing we want to be known for as a church, let us be known for that. Not any other issue, not any other statement. Let us be known by those who are mastered by the gospel and preach this gospel and believe this gospel and live upon this gospel. When was the death of Christ for sinners decided? Well, this was foreordained by God. Revelation 13 in response to the beast, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who has been slain. Why Christ? Christ had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Notice the phrase, according to the Scriptures. And so I want you to bear with me a little bit. I, 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 I'm, I'll probably give more verse references than uh, maybe than normal. And it may feel in some ways like it's too quick, too much, too fast to let it all absorb. It has everything to do with, I don't want to tell you anything today that cannot be backed up by the Scriptures. That should be the, uh, that should be the goal any, any given uh, sermon anyway, but especially when you have that phrase that follows each of these statements according to the Scripture. So it was prophesied in the Old Testament, Genesis 3, 14 and 16. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle 
and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. To the woman he said, I will multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So we see why Christ is prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament. Fulfilled in the New Testament, what we recently studied from John 1, 29. John the Baptist, the forerunner, humanly making the way of the Lord clear. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why was a cross what was chosen for his death? Because it was the means of Christ's death. In the Old Testament, we see the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 22. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. That's Psalm 22. What does that sound like? It sounds like the gospels, um, uh, the, the gospel's accounts of the events of the crucifixion. Why was blood necessary? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Tom Tom Schreiner, in a book, said this about the blood of Christ. Nearly everyone agrees that the blood ritual in Israelite sacrifice is unique. There's been nothing found to date that parallels in any significant way the treatment of blood in Israel, neither in the ancient Near East nor anyone else. Leviticus 17, 11, and 14, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Old Testament sacrifices required the blood of animals, which foreshadowed what only the blood of Christ could do in satisfying God's just wrath toward us. Schreiner also says about the atonement, That the atonement is made by blood to the extent that life is in it. Because life is in it. This is what God has ordained as his means of satisfying, satisfying his wrath against those whom he now loves. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. In his death, what else was accomplished? He died so that we could be removed from the curse of the law. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ's death means we were free from the ceremonial law. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
We were free from the law of works. Christ has redeemed us from the necessity of keeping the law as the condition of our justification and acceptance with God. Again, Galatians chapter 3. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. The law is given as a schoolmaster in order to lead us to Christ. So we see the full extent of this atonement. Christ died according to the Scriptures so that our guilt would not remain. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are several terms related to the atonement where Christ's atoning death is a sin offering to God on our behalf. This is what Paul has in mind with this church. So when he says Christ died according to the Scriptures, Christ raised again according to the Scriptures, this is what he had in mind. Christ died as a sacrifice, Hebrews 9. Christ died as our representative, Romans 5, 12 through 14 and 17 through 21. Christ died as the propitiation for our sins, meaning he satisfied God's wrath toward us. And in satisfying God's wrath toward us, wrath was removed in order that God could pour out his love upon us in Christ. We see that in Hebrews 2, 1 John 2, 1 John 4, Romans 3. Christ died as the penal vicarious sacrifice, meaning Jesus Christ stood in our place and bore the penalty when he died. Another term for this is the vicarious atonement. Christ stood in our stead. He stood in our place. He died as our sacrifice. He died as our representative. Christ died as our substitutionary atonement. 2 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 10. Christ died as our redemption. All of these other things removed God's wrath for us. But it's precious that Christ always also died as our redemption in order to bring us to the Father. Mark 10, Colossians 1, Titus 2, Isaiah 53, and a whole bunch of other passages. Related to Christ's death is his active obedience for us. This means Christ's obedience for us. It speaks of Christ's fulfillment of obedience on our behalf. He obeyed. Where we could not obey the law, Christ obeyed. 1 Corinthians 1.30. This is where I, what I mean when I, when I say that Paul begins this letter with the gospel. It's but by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Romans 5.19, for as though the one, or excuse me, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Christ dying according to the Scriptures, rising again according to the Scriptures, also speaks of Christ's passive obedience on our behalf. This is the suffering of Christ on our behalf. He suffered for us. I want you to track with me. It's, it's, it feels a bit more lecturous today than sermon. I apologize for that. Uh, but I really want to lay a biblical foundation for what it means when we see words like, He died, He rose again, according to the Scriptures. He suffered on our behalf, Isaiah 53. He was considered to be the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He suffered 
on, with death upon the cross. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Galatians 3, Christ became a curse for us. 1 Peter 1, 24, Christ bore our sins in his body. Hebrews 2, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, meaning God, made Him, meaning Christ, to be our sin offering in order that we may be presented. We may be presented to God in righteousness. Christ suffered as a result of being forsaken by God. Matthew chapter 27, as he was giving up his spirit. So one thing is certain according to this text. The gospel must be made known. And the gospel must be delivered. Perhaps this metaphor would be helpful, and it would be of a growing and flourishing tree. We grow deep in understanding the gospel, but we also grow outward. As the root goes further down, we should hope that simultaneously we are growing outward as it affects everything else in life. And lastly, life is a result of the gospel. Verse 10 and 11. Uh, Verses 5 through 9, there are uh, six or seven appearances uh, that Jesus makes after he rises again from the dead. In verse 10 and 11... Hear what Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Verse 10 takes some understanding because uh, I think if I stood up here and just said, I just want to let you know, church, that um, man, I'm, I'm laboring and working harder than anybody else. You would immediately assume that's Quite an arrogant statement, and you would be you would be correct. But what what what? How can Paul? How, how does Paul get away with that? How does Paul make a statement like that and it not be considered just the boastful pride of life? Because he understands God's grace. It's by the grace of God that I am who I am. His grace toward me did not prove to be vain, and I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Here are a few things I want us to understand in verse 10 and 11. You and I, we are who we are by the grace of God. And this grace is not a grace that is given in vain. We don't always use it appropriately. But it's not a grace that is given in vain. There's purpose. There's a reason. It's meant to be used. It's meant to be spent with good, hard labor. As a recipient of His grace, in having the gospel made known and delivered in view, we are to work hard. This is our plight in this Christian life. We are to labor hard. Again, the language here is very helpful to understand the force behind Paul's comments on how hard he is working He is working to the point of exhaustion. 
He's working to the point of weariness. And this weariness is associated with spiritual, physical, and the emotional toil that is connected with gospel ministry. Ask anybody that's laboring in that, and they're not going to tell you that it's easy work. There's going to be spiritual challenges, physical challenges, emotional challenges, all which happen not just in a given week, but all of those that happen in every given day. Gospel ministry is hard ministry. Gospel ministry is hard work that promises great eternal rest. So work hard in these ways. This is how I want to apply this today. Work hard, in the, work hard in these ways. Work hard in knowing the gospel. Labor in that. Make, that. make that be your primary ambition in life, to know the God of the gospel. There's always been cultural issues that the church has had to face. There will always be. And this is always going to be true. We're always going to have cultural issues that we're facing. This is always going to be true until the consummation of the kingdom. Work harder to know the gospel than you do to understand the cultural issue. This is instrumental in our understanding how to relate to a lost world. Our primary responsibility is not to be experts in all things cultural, but to be experts in knowing the God of the gospel. And trusting that it's through this filter that we understand the things that are happening in the, in the world. God has not changed. He's immutable. Unchangeable. We looked at that from last week, Malachi 3. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The gospel does not change. The message has not altered in any way whatsoever. Cultural things, yeah, they, they, they do have a tendency to change. Always waffling. But God remains the same. Work harder to know the gospel than you do to understand the cultural issue. This will allow us to understand the cultural issue through the filter of the Bible. Mercy, justice, sexuality, etc. should never color our view of the Bible. Those things should not determine what we believe the Bible teaches and says. We must understand each of these issues through the filter of the Bible. The Bible informs what we are to think and believe about each of these issues. The Bible also informs how we are to conduct ourselves with those who would disagree. Even the term evangelical has taken on a meaning that in some circles, I for one despise being associated with. When I hear some people define the term evangelical, I think, I don't associate and connect myself with that. The Bible is crystal clear about whose we are, why we are His, how He has made us, what we are to believe, how we are to live, and what we should be spending our energy and life doing. The Bible is clear about that. So, invest your life in understanding what the Bible has to say about those and then let that guide how we live. So we work hard in knowing the gospel. We also work hard to deliver the gospel or proclaim the gospel. Let me love on you for a second. Is there a way your life could be rearranged that might open more doors and opportunities for you to proclaim the gospel? 
Let me ask that again. Is there a way that your life could be rearranged that would open more doors and opportunities to proclaim the gospel? Do you have a lost friend in your life right now? Is there somebody that's not in Christ that's in your life right now that you have the opportunity to not just pray for, but to have some conversations about Jesus Christ with? If not, why? Why is this? If we, if we believe this is the most important message, why would we not, as a reflection of that, seek to engage people so that we can share with them this good news? I think most of our members feel connected to each other in a precious God-honoring way that's supported by the Word. And I, I think this is a precious thing. So encouraging that I think many of our members are well connected with one another. But here's an area that I believe that we're weak in. I believe we're weak in the area of intentional evangelism. It's not to say, not the same thing to say that I think our church would shy away from sharing the gospel. I think if somebody comes into this place right here that's a visitor, I think for the most part, we would actively engage them. We would befriend them. We would seek opportunities to meet with them. But outside of this setting and outside of the settings where uh, those opportunities just present themselves to us, where we really have nowhere else to go, I think that's an area where we can grow in. I believe we should grow in areas and in efforts to engage other people. And I'm just submitting that to you as something that I would strongly encourage you to give some prayer towards. I'm asking you to make this a matter of prayer. And I'm not asking you to make something a matter of prayer that I'm not asking myself to do as well. It's easy for me. It's easy for me to arrange my life in such a way that doesn't put me with a lot of people. In fact, there's uh, an individual that uh, I have met with on some occasions. And uh, I, I uh, recently told his mother... Uh, I have no clue what to do here. He's a young guy that doesn't care anything about the Lord, doesn't want to have any conversation about the Lord. So what do you do with somebody like that? You continue to pray, and you realize that uh, you're probably not going to have the opportunity to share the gospel with them every single time that you meet with them. So you just try to insert yourself into their life, in ways that are, are genuine, they're authentic, so you can be praying. I mean, taking him to school on a weekly basis just to try and build that relationship with him. Invite someone in. Our small groups are meeting or beginning again or resuming this week. Maybe this is a good way for you to invite your small group. Pray for me about this. Here's somebody the Lord's placed on my heart. Ask me about this in the coming weeks if I've taken any steps to try to engage them. Be okay, I mentioned this a few moments ago, with the likelihood that you won't get the full gospel out to this person every time that you talk with them. That's okay. It's all right. It's not going to happen every single time. Working hard has the underlying implication for patience and 
it labors with the realization that God is the one who's doing the work. God's the one who's doing the work. So we ought to roll our sleeves up and enter in and pray. Most people are not natural when it comes to evangelism. I've been around some global missionaries, and I'm just amazed at how they engage people. And uh, in just a matter of moments, it seems like in such a seamless way, they're talking about the gospel. They have a gift for that. Many people don't have a gift for that. And if you don't have a gift for that, that doesn't mean that you get to sit back and sit this one out and leave that responsibility for those who are gifted. And it, it means we ought to humble ourselves and we ought to pray and we ought to seize and take advantage of the opportunities that are presented before us. And we shouldn't be put out if we don't get the whole gospel out every single time that we meet every single lost person. We don't, we don't want it to feel like it's coming across in a canned approach. We don't want them to think, Man, they care more about something else than they do really about me. They refuse to listen to me. So we enter into the person's life. Be okay. Be okay if your family structure gets jarred a bit for ministry reasons. It's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. You are who you are and where you are by the grace of God. It's not our life. I don't have any secret missives. I'm not uh, firing any veiled shots. I'm not even asking us to try to be like the Apostle Paul. I'm laying this burden of ministry work before us to make the gospel known, to proclaim the gospel, to deliver the gospel. I'm encouraging us as of first importance, my brethren, I'm encouraging us to work hard to know the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. Let's pray.